Well, good morning. My name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church. And if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. Welcome to Evangel. Who's ever had that teacher, but they were horrible at teaching students? Does it? But they just didn't, they weren't aware there were students in the classroom. You know what I'm talking about? And now I had some of those teachers in high school, and I had some great teachers. And I remember both kinds of these during my school days. And there's a particular environment which is best for me, Lucas Mitchell, to learn in. Okay, there's a very, it's a very particular environment. It requires two things, all right? The first thing it requires is to some degree, if I want to learn at an optimal level, I have to, I have to respect the teacher. Like, I have to respect them as a person, of a person of character and a person of integrity and a person that, yes, knows their stuff, and, but they live a life I want to emulate, okay? That's, those classrooms, that's, I'm going to learn. The second element is I want to be with teachers that are looking to make their students better. You know, when you get in a classroom, you know those teachers. You can remember those teachers. I had a teacher back in grade eight. His name was Mr. S. We called him Mr. S. He was a big brute of a man. He was rough. He was, he was kind of, yeah. He was, he, was, he was a cool dude. Mr. Simunitas was his full name, but we called him Mr. S because he was cool like that. And we would go to his class, and I remember the first time in his class, I sat down, and as soon as he started speaking, I'm like, I'm going to like this guy. I just knew instantly I'm going to like this guy. And because I knew instantly I'm going to like this guy, just as a person, as a personality and a person, I knew, guess what? I'm going to learn in this classroom. There's going to be something about this classroom. But then Mr. S went beyond that. Mr. S was so intentional about investing in students. Not just the whole classroom, but he would invest in students one-on-one -on -one and take the time. He would care for students. I remember one of my buddies, his brother, his older brother, quite a bit older than him, uh, what did he do? He did something horrible to him, and he came into the classroom, he had bruises. Well, Mr. S, Mr. S asked him, pulled him aside, what, what happened? Well, my older brother, we got in a fight, and of course, this, the older brother, he was a mean dude. I knew him. I, I hung out at this guy's house all the time, and his older brother was just a mean dude, high school student. We were in middle school. Well, Mr. S, do you think Mr. S just let that lay? No, 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 because he cares for students. So he went out, and this older brother used to be a student of his back in the day, and he contacted him and had a little chat. You know, he, he loved his students, and I remember learning so much in that classroom. Today I want to chat with you about what it is to be an architect in your home. Mr. S was intentional about creating environments in which students can learn and grow and be the best that they can be. And today we're going to talk about being an architect in your home. And if you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? Write this down. Men, I know you're not taking notes, so wives, you can take this note for them. You ready? Here's the big idea. Men have a responsibility to be architects of the environments of the home. Men have a responsibility to be architects of the environments of the home. Now, I want to make it clear from the get-go. 
You are not the lone ranger in creating environments, okay? Because Lord knows you do very little of that. I know if I look at my house, the prime creator of those environments is not myself. Lisa does a fantastic job of creating beautiful environments in our home as a mom and as a wife. But the responsibility, the buck stops with you, men, in the home. The responsibility is yours that it's being done. And this is done in mutual partnership with your wife. You are architects. Let's pray. Lord, we just invite you as we dig into Scripture, as we look, Lord God, not at what we think it should be, not at what we, we hope it should be, but rather, Lord, we look at your scriptures, we look at the truths and the principles of your word, and we ask, Lord God, that you would just interject between all the noise of society, all the noise of culture around us, and that you would give us eyes to see, Lord, the way that you, creator God, created us to be. And we thank you, Lord, that you were intentional about creating us, Lord, as Lisa said last week, we are created equal in the eyes of God, man and woman. But that does not mean sameness. And so, Lord, would you help us discover our God-given roles in family and society and culture in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do I use the word architect? The reason I use the word architect is, is because there's a difference between an architect and an engineer. All right, and, and I want you to get this because engineering a home is how most men operate, right? Engineers are all about utility, structure, right? Function. That's how most men operate. Now, I'm talking in general terms, but that's how most men operate. I want to show you a building made by an engineer. You ready? Right? The engineers in the room are going, what's wrong with that? Right? It's, it's just utility. It's utilitarian. It's got function. You don't need, why do you, would you need windows? You can live in there. It's shelter. It's going to keep the wind off. It's, it's good. It's got a door. It's got a big door. You can get the furniture in and out really easy. You can move in and out real well. Right? An engineer thinks of utility and function, and that's how most men create environments in their homes, about utility and function and just getting things done at an optimal level. As quickly as possible, right? The reason I use the word architect is because architects are a little bit different. Yes, they are, they are obsessed about structure. They're obsessed about having the forms right and the foundations right and everything else. But they are also obsessed with creating environments that make you feel something when you walk into them. I'll give you an example. Here's, here's an architect. This is, a, this is a building in Spain, in Bilbo, Spain, called the Guggenheim Museum of Bilbo. Okay, it's not the Guggenheim from uh, America, it's a different one. And this is, uh, this is made by a Frank Gehry. I, I chose this building because Frank Gehry is a Canadian-born architect, although he, uh, he lives in the States and operates out of the U.S. But he was Canadian-born, I thought that was cool. I thought I'd give a little Canadian flair to that. But this is the Guggenheim. It's not just about function and structure, and it's about beauty and environment and creating feeling. Architects are as obsessed about function and utility as they are about how their buildings make you feel, how they touch your heart. And men, 
We could take a lesson from architects when it comes to building environments in our home. And we're going to get a little more into why this is so important as we unpack out of Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we don't put scripture up on the screens. Um, we believe in some ways churches have created lazy Christians. Right? We have. And so at Evangel, we don't want to create lazy Christians. We want to create Christians that think about having their Bibles, whether that's a hard copy Bible, whether that's on your phone, version. Uh, you can visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible, and there's a great app you can download right now. You can pull your phone out and get it. Colossians chapter 3 in verse 19. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we're going to have to read a little more than just verse 19. That's what we're going to be digging into today. But if we do it in isolation, we're going to miss something profound about the patterns that Paul is creating here in this chapter. You see, Paul is more interested in this idea that the Christian life is more than just theory and theology. Right? So, so often we can sit under teaching and we can read the Bible and we can think of it in terms of a separate kind of place in our lives. Theory and theology. But Paul is going, no, no, no. We're going to take Colossians. Up till now, he's been talking theory and theology and what Jesus has done through the gospel in your life. And now he's going to take it and he's going to make it painfully practical for you, for your family, for your workplaces. Every avenue of life, he's going to make it painfully practical. And so we need to understand the pattern that Paul is creating here. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 18. Wives. And this happened last week. If you missed it, you can go back, myevangel.church, check it out. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Okay, now get this. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and, do not, and, not, for, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you see this pattern of responsibility he goes, wives, children, bond servants. You know, wives submit, children obey, bond servants obey and serve. Now, this is often where we kind of stop with this because in our culture, we read that and it's a little bit of a shock factor. And you go, what? That's why last week's sermon was called Me Submit? Question mark? Right? Because it, it brings a reaction, a response. But it doesn't stop there. I would argue that, that the greater responsibility is what follows those commands for the wife and the child and the bondservant. It's about who's responsible for being the architects of the environments in which these commands are to be lived out. Husbands, agape your wives. Love your wives. Fathers, don't provoke. Masters, bosses, managers, supervisors, Treat your employees, your direct reports justly and fairly. These are the environments that you create in which all of it can work together in unity without creating dissension. 
Now, we're going to talk about some of these subsequent relational dynamics in culture and life uh, in the coming weeks, so I don't want to steal too much from them. But for the sake of this sermon, I want you to see the pattern. I want you to see the environments that Paul is setting up here. He's putting the responsibility in husband's hands to be architects of the environments of the home, architects of what you create in your families. It's interesting to me how the, how the dynamic of culture shapes our responses to this scripture. Uh, this is why we need to check culture at the door when it comes to studying scripture. Because we all come with our preconceived ideas. We all come with our idea of what it should be or could be. We all come with our emotional responses to truth, right? Based on how we are raised and based on, on our relational dynamics and our, our families of origin. We bring all, all this baggage into study, studying scripture, and so when we come to Scripture, we need to leave that at the door and dig in to what is God saying through the servant who wrote this so many years ago. And once we establish the principles and the truths of the author, we can look at our culture and begin to filter it through the Scriptures and begin to change the way that we live our lives. Lisa spoke to this tension last week um, in that sermon entitled, Me Submit. She told, spoke to that tension now, what I love, Kerry Newhoff, pastor out in Ontario at Nexus Church, whenever he has to speak a hard sermon, he'll say, he'll say, hey, everybody, this is going to offend you. In fact, to some degree, it offends me. But it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about creator God who set in motion a way that is the best way. And we come into alignment with that, and we come into obedience to that. Our culture is swung to a particular place which gives emotion and tension. Uh, for some, maybe even a visceral response. You know, for some of you sitting last week, and it was a visceral response. When you heard that sentence, wives submit to your husbands. And it was something visceral. Because we've, we've created a culture that has swung so far to the left. But a century ago, the tension would have looked very, very different. When Paul would have wrote these words back in the first century, the tension was not with the women. The tension was with the men. And here's what you need to understand. In the first century, women were no more than property. So think about that. Now here Paul comes, and he begins to say, no, in Jesus there is perfect equality. As Lisa said, not sameness. We're not the same. But there's perfect equality. And so what he did is he came and he said, you know what? Men, you need to start treating your wives as your equals. And in the first century, that would have turned everything on its head. And so the tension, today the tension is with wives hearing that. In the first century, women would have celebrated this teaching of Jesus and of Paul and the idea that in Jesus all people were made equal, that he leveled the playing field. I say it a lot in conversation, but, but Gordon Fee, he's famous for saying, we need to find the radical middle. When it, comes to, when it comes to studying scripture. And this is a case in point. From the first century to now, we have these two extremes. We have these subjugation and abuse and, and horrible mentality around women. 
And then we have this extreme now where there's no difference between men and women. We're all the same. Not just in equality, but in we're all the same. And so we have these two narratives at play. And so often, Scripture brings us back to this radical middle. Perfect equality. But we're not all the same. We've been made unique and different. And God intended it that way. William Barclay, he makes this observation. He says, The Christian ethic is an ethic of mutual obligation. It is never an ethic on which all the duties are on one side. As Paul saw it, husbands have as great an obligation as wives. Parents have just as binding a duty as children. Masters have their responsibilities as much as slaves. This pattern that Paul is laying out gives each part of society their God-given responsibilities. Wives, submit to your husbands. Follow quickly by the responsibility of the husband to be an architect of the environment in which this happens. An environment of love and investment. Men have a responsibility to be architects of the environments of their home. So let's talk about how this happens. Verse 19 of chapter 3 of Colossians. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The first thing to notice in this command is the use of the words that the, the word that's used here is love. And the word in the original language is agape. It says husbands, agape your wives. And why is this important? Because this is the word that describes the love that Jesus extends to humanity and to the church. This is the word that describes Jesus' love for people. This is what looks like dying to yourself in order to serve others. This is the kind of love we're talking about here. In Ephesians chapter 5, 25 to 33, Paul says something, and he unpacks it a little bit more. But he writes the same thing to the Ephesians. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The key ingredient to building the environment of your home is found in the word agape. The kind of love that has no strings attached. And husbands, can I, can I bring it to a bit of an extreme for you? You know what this means. This means your responsibility is to love your wife, even if, worst case scenario, it's not reciprocated. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear this. Your responsibility, husbands... Your responsibility, single men that hope to one day be a husband, I 
I love just pausing in, in those moments. But your responsibility is to create environments of love. Is to create environments of love. Your responsibility is to your wife and not just to yourself. Even if it's not reciprocated. Even if it's not returned. Because we're talking about Jesus' example of love. We're talking about Jesus' modeling of love. I want you to hear this. Jesus loved humanity hanging on a cross as humanity crucified him. Okay? This is what agape means. I want you to think that through. I want you to think about the heaviness of that. Agape love is one that does not require reciprocation. The best example we have of a human being other than Jesus uh, doing this, found in Scripture, is, is, is in the Old Testament in a book called Hosea. And the only way to bring it up, I, I really want you to hear this. I want you to hear the extremes of this. So that you can kind of just engage what God is calling you to, mandating you to, calling you to obedience in. And it's the book of Hosea. And if you haven't read it, I, I dare you to take a look at this thing. Hosea was a prophet in Israel. He was called of God. And God commanded him to go and marry a prostitute and start a family. And so that was the call of God. That was his act of obedience was he went and he found a prostitute named Gomer. And he married her. And they had a few kids and all was well. But then she left him. And she took off to go back into prostitution and to be with other men. And God called Hosea to go and love his wife and go and pursue her. And so he pursued her. And when he found her, he actually had to pay a redeeming price for her. It, she cost them big time, personally, financially, all of it. And he paid that price and he redeemed her and brought her back into his household and back in at his wife. And they continued to build a family. This is the best example of a human being other than Jesus revealing agape love. Revealing agape love even when it wasn't reciprocated. A no-strings-attached kind of love. This is the picture of how Jesus loves the church, even in the midst of rejection, even when the world is against him and they hurt him. He gave his life for the world. And this is what it is, walking obedience looks like. It's as much about you. It's, it's as much about the one you love as it is the deep work of grace that happens when, in you when you choose to love someone other than yourself that way. Because here's what happens. When you choose to love that way, God does something deep in you. He does something deep in you. And I believe when you choose to love that way, you create the greatest environment for your family to thrive in. And to grow in. I think it was laugh your way to a better marriage. Uh, I heard it said the first time. And it was sort of a joke. But it was, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke. But um, I can't remember. Mark Gunger. Mark Gunger. He said, marriage is the great crucible. Okay. Marriage is the great crucible. And I remember everybody laughing. And, 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 and it was kind of this funny moment. But when you really think about it, there's something to that. Because when you get married, I don't, I don't know if you remember back when you were single, right? Everything was about you because it could be. It could be. 
Everything could be about you because you had no one else to really depend on you. Or, and then that moment you got married was the moment you realized just how selfish you really are. Right? You realize just how selfish you really are. And now you got two people trying to come into a home and do this thing together. And without sacrifice, it's not going to work. There has to be sacrifice. There has to be a changing. There has to be thinking of others. There has to be, and here's what I would say, the responsibility to do that falls on the men greater than it falls on the women, biblically. Because men, you're called to love what? Like Christ loved the church and even gave his life for her. I want you to think about that. I want you to let that just resonate a little bit. Marriage is the great crucible. It reveals just how selfish you really are. And then you throw kids in the mix, and then you realize, yeah, I'm still pretty selfish. It's still pretty much about me. The world still revolves around me. And you begin to let go, and you begin to grow. And as you let go and as you grow, God does something deep in you. The first and most prominent ingredient to the architecture of the home is love. A love that wants the best for the other with no strings attached. And, and I, I kind of have in my notes here, you, you mean, does, does that mean that even if she doesn't respect me? You know, husbands might be asking that. Who's ever heard of that old adage, you know, women want love and men want respect, right? Women thrive on love and, women, and men thrive on respect. And there's something to that. But here's, here's the problem. We're not, we're not asking that people respect us in a subservient way. We're asking that we're respected in an authentic way. Nobody wants to be respected because it's demanded. People want to be respected because they're respectable. And men, when you begin to love in this way, God does something deep in you and you become respectable. And that, and that respect, that, res, that, that being a man of respect, that moves out of your home. It moves into the culture. It moves into community. It moves into church. It moves into every place that you go. It moves into your workplace because it's not just a surface level thing. It's something deep that's done inside of you. And you become respectable because you become a man of integrity and character, a man that puts other people ahead of themselves. There's something profound about this process that's only found deep in the, in, in the heart of marriage and the institution that God created. God knew what he was doing when he created marriage. He knew what he was doing. I had a coffee with someone a few weeks ago, and we were, we were chatting about just the power of living the concepts and the principles of faith. And, and uh, this individual didn't know I was going to be preaching the sermon, um, but we were just chatting. And, and, and he said they were out, and they were traveling with the ferries and, and all of that. And, and him and his wife were, as they do, they're holding hands and just loving on each other and just being with each other. And they ended up in a grocery store. And he, and he said, I was in the grocery store, and this, this man came up to me that I didn't, I didn't really know. I've seen him, but I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. He came up to me in the community, in the grocery store, and he said, hey, so-and-so. The reason I'm not using names is because I didn't ask this person for permission. So, hey, so-and-so, I just want to let you know that I told my boys over there that this is what a marriage should look like. This is what a marriage should look like. The way that you guys are loving on one another, the way that you are intimate with one another, the way that you respect and, and are walking with one another. 
You can just, there was something about the deep work of Jesus in a marriage that was walked and lived out in real life, in community, that impacted this individual. And they felt prompted to go and tell this person, hey, by the way, I told my boys this is how marriage should look because you guys are doing it so well. You see, marriage, your marriage isn't just about you. It's not just about you. And we say it all the time at Evangel. Your faith is not just about you. Your marriage is not just about you. There's more at play going on in your life than just you and your little life. When you begin to live out this dynamic in your home, it's going to bleed into the marketplaces and the community around you because marriage is meant to be the great illustration of Christ's love for the church. This is why the foundations of marriage are so under attack today. It's why they're so under attack today because the enemy knows if I can destroy, if I can destroy marriage, if I can erode the foundations of this institution of marriage, I can erode society and culture as a whole. And we're seeing, we're living in the fruits of that right now. We're living in the fruits of that right now. Men have a responsibility to be architects of the environments of the home. The second part of this verse is an interesting one. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, most translations use this word harsh, but, but really this is kind of a poor translation of the meaning, meaning of this word. The, the better word that fits here and, and can be interchangeable is the word bitter. The word bitter, do not be bitter towards them. And then the second interchange to that would be, it can be read this way too. It can be read embittered. So in other words, husbands, do not embitter them. So one is, don't embitter your wife. And the other is, you husband, don't be bitter towards your wife. All right, and we're going to unpack both of these. So, so let me tackle the first one. N.T. Wright, he says this about the perspectives of bitterness here. He says, in particular... He must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent her being the person she is, to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being and not merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. It is when husbands and wives understand these guidelines and live by them that they are truly free free to mature and develop within the creative context of mutual love and respect. I want you to hear that. In other words, we all go into marriage with an assumption of who we said yes to, and when the shine wears off, we realize our mutual reality. Our mutual reality is another broken human being in the house with us. This dynamic is, is not the exception. It's the rule. This is the reality of relationship. And men, you need to guard your hearts from the fantasy. You need to guard your hearts from the fantasy. The, greatest, the single greatest lie in the story of romance is this ideal that you complete me. Who's ever heard that? You complete me. You complete me. It's famous, I think it was... Uh, I think it was Cruz. I think it was Tom Cruise. Uh, Jerry Maguire. No, what, what, what's Jerry Maguire? You complete me. What a load of garbage. 
That's a load of garbage. If you're, if you're married, turn to your spouse right now and just tell them, you don't complete me. You do that? Do it. Let's go. Let's go. If you're single here, look around the room for that potential candidate and, and don't say it out loud, but say it in your head, you won't complete me. It's this warped view of love that in part has contributed to the breakdown of family and marriage in this, our 21st century society in the West. Only Jesus completes the human soul. And it's out of that source and foundation that we have effective and beautiful relationships. It's only when Jesus does something deep in us that we can have intimate and beautiful and successful relationships. Your spouse doesn't complete you, Jesus does. And we got to stop putting that responsibility on another broken human being to fulfill for us because they're just not going to. They're just not going to. We need to turn to Jesus. But here's the flip side of this word. It can also speak to embittering your wife. Husbands, don't embitter your wife. So, so what, is, what, what does this look? And, and, and here's why he says this. If you have created an environment at home where you demand respect without being respectable and do little to nothing in the area of loving your wife with no strings attached, you are creating a perfect storm for your wife to absolutely be bitter towards you. And when you wake up in the morning and you wonder why your wife is so upset with you all the time and seems so bitter and unforgiving towards you, perhaps you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, what kind of environments have I created in which my wife is living? Am I so self-centered and am I demanding respect? Am I demanding rather than a submission of mutual love and respect, I'm demanding subservience in my home? Guess what? You're creating a horrible atmosphere. You're creating a horrible atmosphere. And so Paul's saying, hey guys, listen. Don't embitter your wife with the way that you create the home. Love her to the point of dying and you will take care of that. Love her to the point of putting her above yourself and you will begin to take care of that. You will begin to change the environment in which your wife needs in order to thrive and to be alive and full of life. You need to change that. It's your responsibility before God to change that. Don't embitter your wife. Put yourself in her shoes. She's against a rock and a hard place. Coming out of last week's teaching. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then husbands, if you're not intentional about creating love and environments for your wife, she's in a rock and a hard place going, I want to be obedient to God, but you suck. <laughs> like, help a lady out, guys. Help her out. Begin to be intentional about creating environments of agape in your home. Putting her above yourself. Cut it out. Don't embitter your wife. If you want to have a real life illustration of that, you can just ask Lisa after the service. Ask her about our marriage about 12 years ago. Ask her about our marriage 12 years ago. 
I was a gong show. I was. I wasn't dealing with my stuff. I wasn't putting anyone ahead of myself. The universe revolved around Lucas Mitchell. And I was a gong show to live with. And I was angry. I'd lose my temper at the drop of a hat. Lisa had to walk on eggshells in her home because she didn't know what was going to set me off. Here's the deal. God had to do something painful and deep in me so I could begin to change the environment of my home. And if you're here today and you're just like, you know, it's just been so many years and this is just the way it is and just this is the way I am. Listen, <laughs> this walk of faith is not being just the way you are. That's not what this faith is. Maturing in Jesus is actually to becoming less and less like you and your brokenness and your stuff and your hang-ups and your hold-ups. And looking more and more like Jesus who gave his life for his bride. You need to begin to take responsibility, men, for the environments that you're building in the home. And I don't care if you're 80 or 22, I'm preaching to you. You need to begin to take an inventory. Begin to take an inventory of what you've created. Because it's never too late to tear it down and begin to build again. Never too late. Husbands, love your wives. Agape your wives. Because in so doing, you're creating an environment which, which can alleviate that tension for her to be obedient to God's word for herself. In submission and within the home and within your marriage, you need to create that environment of love and mutual respect. Men have a responsibility to be architects of the environments of the home. I'm just going to ask the worship team to come as we close here. And I want to conclude today and make some really practical things for everybody in the room. And it's, it's kind of hard for, for a sermon that's kind of to a particular subset of people, right? We're talking to very, not just married people, we're talking very kind of subset to husbands right now. But how do we make this something applicable to all of us in the rooms? And, and husbands, I'm going to start with you. And this is where I would usually reference a, a book by Gary... Uh, I think it was Gary Chapman who wrote The Five Love Languages. And I was, I was going to reference that, but let's just be honest. Men, you're not going to read it. Let's just, let's, just, let's just call it what it is, right? And so I just want to give you just some, some advice. And, 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 and let me put it this way. Discover the ways that your, your wife best receives love. Because everybody's different. Everybody's different. And, and you might ask, how do I discover that? Uh, ask her. Okay, that's your homework. On the way home today, ask her. All right? And then begin to love her in that language. Begin to love her in that way. And I can almost guarantee you, husbands, it's going to be the most uncomfortable thing for you. Because it's not going to be your natural wheelhouse. Typically, when God brings two people together, they're so different that we're kind of just figuring this thing out. And here's the secret. 
You ready? Here's the formula. Here's the math to relationships when it comes to this. Begin to love her in that way until you are absolutely, completely uncomfortable, out of your depth uncomfortable. I'm not done yet. And then times it by two. And then times it by two. Man, just when you think you're doing it and you're just, just nailing it and you're just like on it, guess what? You're about halfway there. Okay? You're about halfway there. Press in. Double it. Wives, help a guy out. Help a guy out. Be, be self-aware enough to know what your needs are and communicate them in grace. Communicate them in grace. Because we're kind of in the deep end with our, without our floaties on right now, trying to figure this thing out. So help a guy out. Help communicate. And, and what do you need? And, and man, position your hearts to hear it. Position your hearts to hear it. And then finally, singles in the room. I want to speak to you. I want to say be intentional about finding yourself in Jesus instead of undertaking the impossible task of finding yourself in the arms of another flawed human being. Find yourself in Jesus first. Singleness is a season that can have great intention and great purpose. Be complete in your Savior. So you don't bring that ideal and that fantasy into a marriage where you're looking for someone else to complete you because it's all a load of garbage. Be fulfilled in Christ. And you'll find yourself looking more and more like Jesus, not just for yourself, but Lord willing, for your future spouse and or the friends and community around you. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. Men have a responsibility to be architects in the environments of their homes. And again, this doesn't mean that you do it alone. We all know you need all the help you can get. It doesn't mean you do it alone. God has given you a partner in life to do this with. But it does mean that you're solely responsible. You're responsible for the environments that have been created in your household. You're responsible. So do it in grace, do it in love. Do it while dying to yourself and putting others ahead of yourself. Let's pray. Well, God, sometimes I read scripture and it makes me weak in the knees. Sometimes it just seems like this ideal that's so beyond us. And then I realize, Lord, that that's the point. It is beyond us. And that's why you promise grace. That's why, Lord God, we dig deeper into you, knowing that you are our source for getting this thing right. The more we understand that this is beyond us, the more desperate we are for the source of grace and strength in Jesus. 
Lord, I pray for marriages right now. I pray blessing over marriages in this room right now in Jesus' name. No one in this, in this room has a perfect marriage. And if they say they do, they have other integrity issues. <laughs> but Lord, we recognize that we call married people together in community to grow in one another. Lord, I thank you for the mature among us that have modeled well what it is to love someone for a lifetime and to grow and to build and be missional and do all of that. Lord, I thank you for those that are just starting out, young families and young kids and sometimes the busyness of this season of life just leaves little time for intention and thoughtfulness. Lord, I pray that in the middle of the busyness, that you give windows of clarity to husbands and wives alike. To see the moments and the small things that they can be intentional about in their marriages. And Lord, I pray for the singles among us that in this season of life, Lord, that you take them on a deep journey of knowing themselves in Jesus, of finding themselves in Jesus. And so, Lord, we submit your word to our hearts, even with the tensions that it creates. For some of us, maybe even the visceral responses it builds up. But Lord, we know that we can trust you. That your ways are better than our ways. They're higher than our ways. So Lord, give us grace to walk in this way. To walk in your truth. Not just for the sake of our marriages. But for the sake of society and culture around us. May we be those that are obedient to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.